You're listening to the Script Lab Podcast. I'm Shaney Edwards. Today I sit down with Christopher Pratt, not the popular movie star from Guardians of the Galaxy, but former successful literary manager who decided a few years ago to give up his lucrative career to become one of us. A screenwriter. His personal story is pretty compelling, and he gives some good advice about taking that thing inside you that's broken and letting that determine your success. He's also very inspired by a video called Endings, the Good, the Bad, and the Insanely Great by David Arndt, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. So we discussed that. Also, Christopher decided not to go to film school. Instead, he's written one script a month for the last five years. Yes, that's 60 scripts. It's a lot of time and a big gamble. Will it pay off? Only time will tell. I think it's worth a listen. Hi, Christopher. Well, hello, Shaney. How are you? I'm doing super. How are you? I'm good. We've known each other for some time now. Many we, years. Yeah, we worked together a little bit in the beginning, and mm-hmm. then your career kind of changed, and I changed. I used to be an actress, and now I'm a writer. Um, but you've always been a friend, and you've always given me really good advice. So thank you for that. Thank you. So you are you were a literary manager for a long time. Yes. Now... You are a writer, yes. screenwriter. Yes. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that transition? Who, what, why? You know, as a literary manager, I had these phenomenal mentors in George Shapiro and Howard West, and I learned, you know, a tremendous amount about, you know, where the business has been, and then watching where it was and where it was going. I had really, really fantastic opportunities to learn kind of the arc of the industry. And I started looking at kind of longer, you know, picture, bigger picture down the road, where that was going, where the streaming was going, where things were headed. And I would have these, you know, really in-depth conversations with my clients. And I found that people were pretty successful following parts of my advice. But I had a great client who pulled me aside one day and he was like, listen, there's nothing wrong with your strategy per se, but it's really a strategy for one it's really for you to do this. And the thought had never occurred to me to actually do this. Like to me as, as a manager, as, as a writer to do this, meaning oh, to, oh, to oh. become a writer, to become a storyteller, to become the kind of client I wanted to represent, be the client you want to represent. Right. So, uh, it was a really difficult thing for me to wrap my head around becoming a creative person after so many years of being focused on business. I had a lot of luck. You know, I sold things for millions of dollars and I, you know, had multiple clients that were seven figure earners and I had uh, a lot of first time screenwriting sales and a lot of first time directing opportunities, which is incredibly challenging. But as time went on and I started getting more and more focused, you know, I, I partnered with one client and he was basically like, look, if you want to do what you want to do, only you were going to be able to do that. So it, it started becoming more clear that I needed to carve out the space and the time in my life in order to overcome the deficit that I had and become a full-fledged writer yeah yeah so what was your strategy well to answer that question I think I have to go back a little bit I have to kind of go back to childhood and I'd like to talk about shame and this is the first time I've ever admitted this in any kind of public forum I love shame yeah it's a really powerful weapon and they use it against us we use it against ourselves it took me a long time to come to terms with my own so my parents when I was a little child decided that they wanted to drop out of society and they moved us to a farm in the middle of the Amish community. And we had no TV and no radio and no movies and no music. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they decided that isolation and religious indoctrinization would be the greatest benefit that they could give us children to prepare us for probably the second coming. But the point being is that I was still in public school, but I didn't have any of the social tools. I didn't have the lunchbox. I didn't have the action figure. I didn't have one of the toys. I never saw the shows. So we think about how much of socialization is built around what happened on A-Team or what Luke Skywalker or Halloween costumes, which we weren't allowed to participate in, or or the t-shirt at the lunchbox, like the things that are the grammar of children's understanding to frame the world, the birthday parties and all of the activities that we were excluded from, those things were completely absent in my life. And I was just tremendously shameful about it. I was scared and I was um, isolated. And uh, You were a weird kid. I was super weird. Ah. Super weird kid. And I think that I hid that pain for a long, long time, even for myself. And it's no small thing. Like, you know, the therapist that I would see would tell you that I was gravitated towards a film and television career because that's the polar opposite of how I was raised. And when I came out here, even after college, I mean, I wasn't like a go to grad school, you know, go to Ivy League. I was like a not, I was not the bright kid. I was, we didn't, we didn't read books. Like we didn't have story time. Like we had Bible. So, uh, by the time I got to Hollywood, I would sit in these meetings and people would be talking about things they loved and they cherished and like deep emotional resonance, connection to these things from childhood, nostalgia, you know, the Don Draper pain that comes from longing, right? I didn't have any of it. I would have to leave meetings and go home and look things up because I didn't have the same grammar and I was terrified. I was terrified of being caught. I was terrified of being exposed. I was terrified of being uncovered as a fraud. I was afraid that if people knew how just dumb I was like I hadn't read classics and you were ignorant not ignor- dumb. Ign- ignorant in a way that I had learned to compensate through being a talker and a salesperson but not educated in any way and uh you know I dropped out of four or five colleges like I wasn't really a great student I had to pay my own way and you know poor so I uh you know, I hid that from people for years and years. And what I've come to realize is that that thing that you're most afraid of, that thing that you're most ashamed of, that thing that the world would hold against you, that's actually your superpower. Mm. That's actually a thing that sets you apart. That's the thing that makes you strong in a way they can't understand. Because what I realized over time was that thing that kept me from seeing the world the way everyone else saw the world is a, is a power because I don't have the same preconceived notions about the way things operate and the way things belong and the way things are norm- the way things are supposed to be. I can see completely alternative versions of it because I didn't have those things as a kid to program me. I didn't have lightsaber battles and I didn't have, you know, you know, beam me up and I didn't have, you know, the lunchbox and the transformer. So I don't, I don't, I didn't have Optimus Prime as my surrogate. Did you have brothers and sisters? Many, many, many of them. Oh. And each of them dealt with it or are dealing with it in their own kind of specific ways. But yeah, almost all my parents had two families. So my older brother, sisters moved out when they were like 16. And then I was the oldest of our group. But coming to terms with that and realizing it, I realized if I'm going to make a transition from manager to writer, I can't just look at you know, the clients that I had and compare myself to them. I have to kind of compare myself to the very best people who have ever done this. Good. Like the, the rock stars, the mega stars. So I sat down and I made a little list 
And I said, here's the books I think I need to read, and here's some of the classics, and here's some of the, you know, you know, women's studies and psychology. I built my own little college, you know, class list of, um, what's it called, syllabus. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized the amount of time it would take me to read those books, plus the amount of time it would take me to start writing, was going to be, you know, the, the you know, Mahali Chick sent me high, flow, the 10,000-hour guy, right, before Malcolm Gladwell reappropriated that it was Mahali Chick sent me high and he was like look a state of flow is a 10,000 hours of practice and then you're in flow you're 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 channeling the force right and I realized that in order to do that I couldn't do it living in Los Angeles with the dinners and the drinks and the parties and the invites because of the amount of time that takes Mm -hmm. so I had to isolate myself and I had to create an atmosphere where I could afford to spend 50 60 70 hours a week so that I could get my 10,000 hours done in five years or six years instead of the 10, 12, 15 years it would take living in the city. And the only way to do that would be poverty. (laughs) Full circle. Okay. So I put myself back in the same situation I was in in my childhood. We moved to the mountains. We had a guest house. We rented out the guest house on Airbnb. We paid our rent for the house with the income we made from Airbnb every month. And I created a situation where our bills were as low as possible so that I could dedicate 50 or 60 hours every single week, weekend, week. I take a day off every three or four weeks, but I loved it and I was excited about it. And that list of 100 books grew to 300 and then 500 and then now I'm like at 1,200 books that I've been able to read in this amount of time and I've been able to generate a tremendous amount of pages. And you know, I, I love that you're talking to me and I appreciate it and I'm grateful. I look through your roster and I'm by far the least successful screenwriter you've ever spoken to on this podcast. Well, you know, I I think what you're doing is so unique and just getting this recent set of notes on my screenplay from you, nobody else gave me notes like that. So you're really on to something. Well, I have the benefit of having spent 12 years as a manager. So I gave those notes for 12 years like like a moron in the dark, like stabbing at words. Like I, I have bought cases of Save the Cat. Talk about shame. I've given Save the Cat out to so many people and told them they had to read it right away because when I first read it, it was miraculous because I hadn't read all of the things that Save the Cat is a cheat sheet for. I hadn't read Vogler. I hadn't read Truby. I hadn't read any of the people that have done it much, 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 much better. So I saw that as like a, 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 a that sort of cheat sheet version was for me a miraculous moment when I've had, here's how finally how I understand how, how it works. And then I, to be fair, I love save the cat. I've read it over and over, but I understand. I think your point is that it's not the end all be all. Yeah. And when, as soon as I started pe- peeling, as soon as I had the time mm-hmm. and then a focus and I started peeling back more and more and more and more layers, that old, when the student is ready, the master will appear more and more and more complex theories started coming into my world and I was able to digest them. It's funny. There's a funny story. Uh, I was in a meeting, uh, at Overbrook, when I was a manager years ago and Will Smith did this pop by, he pops his head and he goes, Hey, I'm Will. It's like the fourth time he's done this. So I, I love that he does that. Cause Hey, I'm Will is my favorite thing that he says. And, uh, I said, Will, give me one tip. Give me one thing, just one little thing. And he gave me the name of this book and he told me the book. And I went after that meeting and I was like, I hadn't read that book. I went to the bookstore. I bought that book. I read it cover to cover. I couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> I just, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me at all. Like it, it was like all different terms, all different ideas, all different everything. So I'm at my desk typing one day and I'm really frustrated and I throw something and it sticks in the carpet and the carpet is by the bookshelf. And when I go to pick it up, the book is right in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, it's that book. Seven years later, 
I started it. I read it cover to cover that day. And it was the answer to all the problems I was having in that moment in writing. And it's like that kind of thing happens over and over and over when you start to carve out the kind of space, carve all the noise out of your life and create the, the, the room for it. Can you share the name of the book? Uh, yeah, that was The Moral Premise by Dr. Stanley Williams. I know people go hard on Stanley because he does this comparison thing online where he's got a story pyramid with a bunch of different people. But I like that that's how Blake Snyder does it and also how Freitag does it and also how Shakespeare does it. And all. I, I like seeing what the equal signs are for all of those because, you know, to be honest, the debate is a 10-page chunk in Blake Snyder's book, but other people break that down page by page, and you get a lot more understanding of like what is really happening in there. So it's not just a debate, you know, uh, the, the rejection of the call or whatever you want to call it. So learning everyone's source has helped me tremendously when I meet with producers now because I used to produce, and I know what producing is, and I, I, I have a lot of empathy for their, for their, you know, their journey, their, their, their job. But I also know all of the different forms of the screenwriting techniques or methods or who, whatever. So that if someone's a big Blake Snyder fan, I'm using Blake Snyder terms. If somebody's a John Truby fan, it's, yeah, you know, into the story, John York is my new thing. But not a lot of people are onto that yet. So it's like whoever, whatever works for you is what I want to work with so that we can work together and work towards the goal in a more direct way. Wow, that's fascinating. And so seven years later, you, a, you were able to pick up the book and have it really speak to you. Yeah, it was like the thing I needed to know. And, you know, we're really good fans now. And now I'm giving Stanley videos and telling him, you need to watch this, you need to see this, let's talk about this. And uh, we still have those conversations. He was a consultant for Overbrook for years. So you look at all the success that Will Smith had and how those movies were almost every single one of them predetermined to be not just hits, but successful storytelling vehicles and it's like and I think if I if I were to say any one thing today the most important thing I could pass along is that when I was a manager I had bought into or drank the Kool-Aid like I we were all using the same set of tools and I'm not just talking about the books or the ways that we tell stories but I think that we all believed that there was this general conceit that it's all about the idea the big idea, the big hook, the big premise. And some people say, no, it's really about the characters. And other people say, no, it's really the execution. And other people say, and in truth, all those things are true. It is about the big idea and the truth and characters. But what I learned, the more and more successful people that I worked with, the more I learned that it really is about becoming a Jedi. It really is about a systematic approach to the craft that makes you so sharp that you can go into any meeting at any studio or any production company at any time and talk to any person from the from the assistant who's making their way up to the president of the company and at at any point they have a billion dollars on their desk mm -hmm. they have comics they have graphic novels they have articles they have failed first drafts they have you know open writing assignments they have public domain they have the public domain sitting on their desk. They're like, I really want to figure out how to do this. And it's worth a billion dollars to the right person. But the truth is, it's not about coming up with a great concept or even cracking a great spec. And this is the failure that I think, you know, you asked me before, what was a thing that I saw that I would do different now? I think one of the biggest things is I spent so much time helping clients get good at a script or polish a script or finish a script. And I realized the truth is you have to kind of be have Jedi powers to walk in and do that at any time with any story in any genre with any format because that's kind of the job now 
There's only one job now, and I think the one job now is showrunner, and you're either running a television show for TV or streaming, or you're running a television show in the feature world, but you're writing that episode or producing that episode, you're doing that episode of that. I mean, Marvel is a 21-film season finale episode of the Marvel Universe, and it's the most substantial storytelling in the history of the the medium when you think about the kind of progress of a 21-movie arc and what it came together and what it that's a tv show mm-hmm. can you do that episode can you do the mid-season cliffhanger can you do the second act can you and that ability comes from having generated a tremendous amount of work so what i tried to do was i set this crazy goal you ready for this yeah okay i noticed none of my clients sold their first or second script and if they did they never worked again okay okay so none of them really became baseline professional until they'd written a dozen things or so. Because that's like, okay, I've written 12 things. I kind of know what I'm doing. Like I can go in, I can talk about it. I can actually put myself forward at a professional level. So I decided, and, and by the way, everybody writes slow, in my opinion. Like everybody's, everybody's pacing is slower than I knew I could put up with because I'd already been a manager for 12 years. I can't take six months to do a first draft and then get notes and go out with one spec every year. I can't do that. So I decided I was going to do something different. I was going to set this impossible goal in front of myself, and I was going to write one new spec every single month for a year. Wow. Yeah. Did, did you, was there a genre, or you wanted to explore all genres? Uh, pretty much all genres. I mean, I think TV pilots are harder to write than features because you're setting up 100 episodes in success, so you kind of have to like think a lot more TV such as I think much harder but then over time the TV business has morphed into the feature business so now all movies are five acts anyway so it's almost like longer versions you know with lesser outbreaks but that's a whole other podcast Um, so doing one a month yes ma'am are these how how has that helped you well at first it was this terrifying thing and you know I had a client named Brian Hill who I partnered with for a number of years. And Brian gave me the most powerful statement that I ever had as a writer. And he said, you have to give yourself permission to be terrible. So I thought he was kidding until I started writing. And then I was like, this is terrible. The the fear that we have, right? The shame that we have as writers is knowing every day this is terrible. I couldn't agree with you more. If we don't know it's terrible, we're delusional. We feel terrible about being delusional because we secretly know it's terrible. Yeah. The minute you give yourself permission to, to stink... Like, this is bad. I, I, I'd like to say, don't wonder if it's bad. Don't suspect that it might be bad. Don't be fearful that it might not be good. Just know in your heart of heart, deep down inside, this is terrible. This is garbage. I'm running garbage today. I wrote garbage yesterday. I'm going to write garbage tomorrow and keep going. And I think that the, the I, wrote, I wrote six months drafts. I wrote drafts that took six months. Sure. They're no better than the drafts that I wrote in, in, in 30 days. I believe it, just starting out. Yeah. Okay, so a draft a month for a year. By the time I ended the first year, I had a system. The first of the month is crushing depression and, and, and horrible sadness that A, you had just finished something, and B, that it's terrible, right? Followed by the second day of the month, which was like, okay, but I have to put that behind me because I have to be terrible again tomorrow, right? <laughs> right. And I could go through a whole month, but the point being is that by the end of the first year, I was already in a groove. So I kept going and my script anniversary is next week and I will be putting the final pages down on my 60th script, wow. a script a month for five years straight. Wow. And let me tell you, they get less terrible. 
I bet. Only slightly. <laughs> Not massively less terrible, but they get less terrible. And the fear of sitting down and coming up with an idea and breaking the idea and going to treatment and going to scriptment and going to first draft and having something that's 100 pages that's done that has a beginning, middle, and end that you would actually show to someone and ask them to look at is gone. I don't have any fear of that at all in any way. Like I have eliminated that fear because I've faced it 59 times in a row and it's still there every time and it's going to be hard and you just overcome it. So I was in a unique position because I was a manager for 12 years. I know the partners at the agencies, like I know the production companies, like I can call them up and ask them. And it was so hard not to ask them to read the first script I knew was good. Why didn't you ask them? Because I wasn't a Jedi. Okay. See, I think that Jedis walk into a room and they know each other. It's like the Spidey sense. <laughs> it's the multiverse. It's, you know, the Spidey sense goes off and they're like, oh, you're, you're, you do what? Okay. Yeah. We're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let them in. Let them in. And I don't think it's necessarily a club like they don't want you in. I think they're desperate to have you in. I think they want you in as soon as possible, but I don't think they can train you at all. I don't think they can take your raw talent or your ambition or like your, 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 your preternatural gift. Thank God I'm not gifted. I am not gifted. I'm a dumb kid from Missouri who worked very, 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 very hard to take those things I was most weak at, that I was most ashamed of, and forge those into a sharp steel blade so that when I go in and they ask me, well, how'd you do that? I say, well, I can show you the math. But in truth... That thing is what they need. They need that fully formed. They need that person that's ready. If they have a billion dollars on their desk, they're not looking for you to talk to them about a take and maybe run it up the ladder and see. Like, they want to know, if we work with you, can you deliver? Like, can you come back and give us a movie that we can go off and make? Or more appropriately, can we fire you and hire a name writer to put their name on this script so someone else can take credit for this? I mean, not to say, look, whoever rewrites me is going to be a genius. Like, they're already way ahead of me, so I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is fully formed, like not training, like not holding your hand and helping you along. And it's not about having a good scene or coming up with a good character or having a big concept. It's like, and, you know, I stole this from Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon said... Any idea is a multi-billion dollar idea. Anything is a franchise. Can you go in and turn it into that? Can you go in and figure out the right way to do it? So in order to do that, part of it is overcoming the fear of mediocrity, which you do on a daily basis because you're living in it. You're mired in it. At no point did my script start becoming fantastic. What happened was I lost the fear of being terrible, got to first draft quicker, started attacking the process of rewriting faster and more often and more abundantly. And there's a movie that I wrote in three days to see if I could. Mm -hmm. And I sent it out for feedback and four different people liked four different things about it. And I realized I had done it entirely wrong. And 30 days later, I started the script again and it was a page one rewrite. And there was only one line from the first script to the second script. Wow. The entire thing. And the new script is like exactly what that movie needs to be. And I, ha I, I never would have known that had I not written many, 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 I mean, just many ideas, many ways over and over and over again. Like, you know, I wanted to write a Marvel movie, but I don't think that you show up and write a Marvel movie. I think you already have written Marvel movies and Marvel goes, oh, you should write a Marvel movie or you're so good at character that they go, don't worry, we'll help you structurally. So what I did was I found public domain characters and I wrote a team up movie like the Avengers where they all come together to solve the big bad and I put it down. And then afterwards I thought, well, that's one way to do it, but who are these people? So I took everyone in the team 
And the next five months, we're writing individual spin-off movies. Some were prequels to the team-up. Some were sequels to the team-up. Wow. But everyone got their own movie. So I started with the Avengers, and then I wrote Captain America and Hulk. And so all in public domain, not Marvel characters, but in the public domain, but in that style. And then by the time I was done writing those five characters, I knew them all so much better. And then I went back and rewrote the team-up movie. And then even then, I knew it was not great. And that's when I found Michael Arndt. Mm. And that changed my life forever. So Michael Arndt wrote Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorite films. Everyone's, everyone's Everyone. all-time favorite film. Um, and he made a video, and I watched it over the weekend per your suggestion, and I found it really, really interesting. He takes three movies, Star Wars, Little Miss Sunshine, and... The Graduate. The Graduate. Yeah. And he points out different aspects that are similar in each of the films. Yeah. And it's a 90-minute video. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. Why don't you give me your take on it? Well, the interesting thing is that I had rewritten this, you know, superhero team-up public domain story so many times. I was just like crush, uh, crush, disappointment, like crushing disappointment. Like, why isn't this better? Why aren't I better? Why isn't this like, I'm studying, you know, James Gunn and Nicole, you know, uh, uh, Perlman, um, uh, I'm studying, you know, you know, Joss Whedon. I'm looking at how these guys are building these movies and I'm, I can see the deficit between what they did and what I did. I know it. I can see it right there. I, I can feel it, but I don't know how to overcome that. And the people that I showed it to were so excited about the idea of what I was doing that they missed the point of it's, 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 it's gap. It's like they couldn't see the chasm in the middle of it that I could see. And I was really, really just saddened and frustrated at the end of my rope. And then uh, I had stumbled across that video, I think, on like a Reddit. Reddit has this great thing where they where they um, collect all the resources. If you do Reddit and then you search screenwriting and then you search screenwriting resources, all the best videos, all the best script logs, all the best libraries of available screenplays to read, um, all the best know. books and videos, amazing in there. So I think I found it through that. And I watched this Michael Arndt video, which is a talk he's been giving for years. It's been very successful. He finally had some friends who came together and said, hey, let's make a video of this. It's very well produced, really informative. And I, as soon as I saw it, I realized, oh my God, that's, that's the thing. That's exactly what I'm missing. That thing is the solution to the problem that I had. So I watched that 90 minute video and then I watched it again, then I watched it again. And then the third time I was like, I got to start taking notes. And then I started taking notes and I realized, well, this is kind of a this is, this could be a book. He didn't write the book, but this could be a book. So I started writing down questions to ask myself and it ended up being an 11 page document. That is, uh, what I call the insanely great endings workbook, the IGE workbook, right? Insanely great endings, the workbook. And it's like, here are the questions you should be asking yourself about your screenplay. Right. So, so I had just given my script, my team up movie to a producer. The producer came back with three notes the three notes were not at all what it needed. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't what I, I, I would, you know what I'm saying? So of what course. I did was <laughs> I, I set the screenplay on one side and I set the workbook on the other side and I started going through my workbook, which is really Michael's workbook. And I started asking myself, if I were giving myself notes, if I were the producer and I were giving myself notes on the script, what does it really need? And that 11 pages filled out was 87 pages of notes for myself. So next time your producer gives you notes and it's like 15 or 20 or 25 or 35 pages, realize I gave myself 87 pages of notes on my own movie that I'd already written a dozen times over the last, you know, three, four years. 
And it became perfectly clear, like, oh, this is what I need to do in order to make that happen. And I think the thing that's so fascinating about what he does is he looks at screenplays, storytelling, you know, movies, and he says, look, there's no one right way. Don't quote me. You know, do what's right for you. But here's, you know, tools, not rules, which is the Pixar method. If you look at Pixar and the origins of the story lab in Pixar and the people that were there during the origins of the story lab at Pixar, and then you follow the transition of those careers, those are the Joss Whedons and the Michael Arntz and the people who left there took that insanely great ending system and applied it to Star Wars and started applying it to other things, Avengers and other things in other places. And you start to see, oh, some of the stuff that I really, really, really love all uses this in some way because the creators that were in that room at that time all kind of got those rules. I don't know how much Michael had it formed at that time, but certainly that Pixar Story Lab is gold to us storytellers, like learning how to do what they did in any kind of a systematic format. So he has this idea that, you know, we're all taught the internal and external, right? The internal plot is the emotional plot and the external plot is the story plot. And those are the two things, internal plot, external plot. And he's like, no, there's a whole third plot. There's a philosophical plot, which is what the movie's about, which some people would accuse of, accuse you of calling theme, but it is a plot with an arc with characters that are both antagonist and protagonist and, and characters that are mentors and, and adversaries or, um, what's the word? Uh, villains, yeah, the, the antagonist. Yeah, the antagonist for that character is philosophical. There's a philosophical antagonist, an emotional internal antagonist, and a, an external plot sort of antagonist. And it all sounds so confusing. You should watch the video, insanely great endings. I'm sure you'll have it in the. Um, I'm sure you'll have it in the link uh, of the of this podcast. But man, it just changed everything. And then when I started like really applying that workbook to everything I was writing, it just changed my entire approach. So I'm the f- you know, there's fast, cheap, and good, and you can pick two. I'm the faster, cheaper version of Michael Arndt right now. Okay. So I'm not going to say I'm the better version because he's Michael Pretty Arndt. Good. But yeah, but faster and cheaper, that's that's what I'm doing. The one thing that really stood out to me in the video was this the philosophical arc that you're talking about because I hadn't really considered it. Because in film school, they're like, yeah, don't write from theme. That's crazy. And you shouldn't. Um, but you should obviously be aware of what your story is about on a deeper level. Yeah, and I think the the challenge for screenwriting is that it's always getting harder. You know, J.J. Abrams once said, I said, what is the one thing I could take to my client? When I was manager, I ran to him and I said, what's one thing I could take to my clients that's like a gym? And he goes, you got to let them know that it's the only job you'll ever do in your entire life that gets harder every single time you do it. He's not wrong. <laughs> every single time you do it, it gets harder. And I've internalized that a lot as a screenwriter, 50, 60 drafts, you know, stories, scripts, completed, finished pilots and stage plays and movies, I realize, oh, okay, the lessons I'm learning right now are things I couldn't even conceive in my 20s drafts or 30s drafts or whatever. Uh, I think that the philosophical arc is a thing that maybe James Cameron and George Lucas and people making movies in the 70s and 80s that still resonate with us today knew on an instinctive level but didn't sit down and map out because I thought Michael Arndt's method was going to be this fantastic way to create like this roadmap to create a new story. And what I realized is it is a rewrite tool. It is not a creation tool because when you sit down and you start plugging that stuff in forward, you know, going forward, it's a nightmare. It's impossible. But when you're finished and you have something and it's malleable and it's still livable, a breathable, livable working document, and then you apply it, you can go back and see all these 
opportunities and holes and places and you're like, oh, I meant to do that. That's what I was trying to do. But it, it's just something to give you some guidance, something to say, this is what the promised land looks like. Because he talks about this 90 second period, mm-hmm. this 90 seconds at the end of the movie when honestly 11 things happen in a it, row. It sent me into a panic because I couldn't figure out which 90 seconds of my screenplay that no, was. <laughs> it, it, it is a nightmare inducing educational video, this 90 minute video. I've seen it a dozen times now and the 90 seconds at the end of the movie when the character has a sequence of events that come together it's 11 things in a row that happens inside a minute and a half that causes you to stand on your feet and pump your fist in the air and like that's an insanely great ending and he makes it sound so simple he uses these phenomenal examples one of which he wrote and two of which he understands well enough to teach from and it seems easy when he does it. And then when you really start applying it to your stuff, you're like, oh my God, this is really, really, really hard. And it took me probably a half a dozen scripts applying it before I realized, oh, when you don't pick the right story, it's never going to be this. Or when you don't have the right engine to tell your story, it's never going to be this. Or when you don't have the right setup, it's never going to be this. And you know, the thing that I loved about your script is that you had so many of the insanely great endings moment at the end of your movie it was like an uncanny how many you had. And then what we talked about was how many of those were set up properly in the beginning. <laughs> right. So you had all these payoffs. And I was like, those are awesome payoffs. Because as a writer, I'm thinking, well, here's, a, you know, here's where it set those up. But instinct, the more professional you get and the more you train, the harder you work, the more your instinct will be right on. But instinct has to be honed and trained and taught and kind of formed. And also, we're really ambitious people. We're not trying to like write a script that gets optioned. Like, we don't need a producer who has a credit to sit down with us and say, hey, we like your movie, we'd like to get a free option on it, or here's a few grand. Like, we want to write the stuff that people love. Like, we want to help solve their billion-dollar problems. Like, we want to do franchise work and make part two and part three, and we want to showrun in television and film. And when you have that level of ambition, you kind of hold yourself to a new standard, and your peers are the people that are the best people that have ever done this. So you're learning from Miss Duvernay, and you're learning from Miss Rhymes, and you're learning from Mr. Spielberg, and you're learning from Mr. Abrams and Chris McQuarrie, and like you're kind of now applying your understanding of it and your work ethic and your uh, um, um, just drive and passion for, for story to a whole new level that you might not have if you were just focused on a good script or a good idea or a good concept or a good characters or a good scene. It, it, it kind of sets a new, raises, it kind of sets a new bar. So when do you get your lightsaber and become a Jedi? Only a true Jedi will tell me that. <laughs> so uh, people often ask how many scripts I've sold and I respond with how many have I shown? And it wasn't until the last 30 days or so that I felt like, okay, instead of one in 10 being sellable, now one in three is sellable. And so now I feel like, okay, I yeah, I can't tell you how many clients I had that sold first things and sold second things. And at some point they went in the room with someone who realized that they couldn't do it, that they weren't Jedi, that they weren't going to take them to the promised land, that they weren't ready, that they weren't able to be handed the comic book or the graphic novel or the public domain characters and say, can you do this in the style of X, Y, Z? Um, and that was the end of their career. Mm-hmm. I mean, people that I sold scripts for that made millions of dollars as screenwriters are not working because they just weren't Jedi. And unfortunately, that's just what they need. So 
What I'm looking for right now is people to exploit me. I need people who have impossible screenplays, who have impossible jobs with an impossible needle to thread that want to pay very, 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 very little and expect a tremendous amount of work. And then the bullseye is so small that no one else in the world can hit it. Those are the jobs that I need because when I take those jobs and I feel like I'm almost ready, like I think they'll tell me when I'm ready, but I think I'm almost ready. When I take those jobs, they're going to find out real fast if I'm ready. That's true. And if any producers are listening, you might be getting contacted. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna get sold on lots of work and low money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is, by the way, exactly what I get right now. I'm a 25 cent per hour screenwriter. Did I tell you this? No. Okay, if you take the number of hours that I've put into this process, and then you take the amount of money that I've made and divide it evenly... <laughs> 25 cents an hour is what I make right now. And you know, it's funny, Brian Hill, another just genius thing that he said is, look, he said, if you're not willing to do this for minimum wage, don't because you will. Minimum wage is the way that you become a screenwriter. So if you're willing to work for years and years and years and years at minimum wage to become a screenwriter, then okay, then do it. And I, the first thing I sell on a student, like the first real sale I have will make me a minimum wage screenwriter. The second thing I sell will make me like a a paralegal level screen, like, you know, what if, what if I never made more than 40 or $50,000 a year doing this? All of my superstar heroes have written, Ben Hecht has 130 screenplay credits or uncredited, but he worked on 130 scripts. He's got two dozen stage plays. He wrote 18 novels. Like the people that I love, S- Stephen King says, write 2000 words a day and you're a professional writer. Mm-hmm. But if you think of screenplay, screenplay is only 20,000 words. If you're Tarantino, it's 30,000. If you're, you know, somebody else, it's 18,000. But it's 20,000 words, that's 10 days. 10 pages a day, 10 days, it's a script. So the first week of your month should be focused on finding the next story. And second week of your month is deciding how you're going to tell it. And the third week of your month is breaking out your acts. And TV writers write this much. It's true. I am sure a lot of my listeners have full-time jobs and kids. And, you know, this is a very, would be a difficult position for them. I, I have two girls at home. I have you know, a, a job. I have just made the commitment to live in poverty until I can do it. Like my client who lived in his mother's basement for five years and studied and read and worked and learned was able to walk in the room with like at least forced push powers. At least he could move the shit with his hands if not completely <laughs> run the lightsaber. Like, you know what I mean? So I, I think it's because my heroes are at a level that was so far away from where I was and I saw the gap between where I was and where they were and I was like, I'm never gonna get to work with these people. I'm never gonna get to work with them unless I just completely change everything about the way I approach this business. And now I here I am coming through like five, six years later and I'm starting to come out of the woods and I'm starting to take these meetings and I'm starting to sit down with people. And it's for me this fascinating, fascinating journey because this started with the shame of my childhood and feeling like I was not one of them and I was not included and I didn't understand and I didn't speak the same language or have the same loves. And the truth is, is I do and I have and I can. But that thing that they would use to hold you back, that, you know, that perspective, that race, that poverty, whatever that thing is that... that that gender, all of intersectionality is, is, is exactly that, which is a, you're not one of us, you know, philosophy. All of that is a super, super, super advantage because you already have all that empathy. You already have that pain. You already have that well from which to draw to say, I'm going to create the thing that all the people that feel the way that I do can also understand. 
And I think that as soon as you make that commitment to draw from that and not be ashamed of it and not hide it and not, 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 not shelter it away from the world, but instead to say, hey, here it is. Let me, let, me, let me take this thing that I feel is my greatest weakness and let me use it to empower myself, then the sky's the limit. I mean, the, the sky is the limit. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your powerful story. And I wish the best for you. And I'm pretty confident that you're going to be selling something. Yeah, I think it's um, a don't die, don't quit business. So as long as my you know, health can maintain, I think the thing that I fear most, you want to know what terrifies me? Sure. Selling something and not having to work as hard as I work right now. I think you'll get over it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my great fear is mediocrity, like kind of coasting, kind of having comfort and, and not being as motivated because how am I supposed to get to 100 or 120 or 150? How am I supposed to get to work with all these people I want to work with when I'm not motivated? Like, and that's why I think I worked really, really long and hard to make sure that money was never going to be my motivation. Awards are never going to be my motivation. Box office is never going to be my motivation. Those things are really important to my partners. I hold them as really high, you know, I'm very respectful of all of them, but that's not why I do it. Why I do it is that thing inside me that's broken. And I think take that thing inside you that's broken and everyone, all the writers out there, take that thing inside the broken and let that determine your success so that you can never let them take your power when you judge. Like people say, well, you're a total failure as a screenwriter because you've written 60 things and you've never sold a single thing. And I say, no, 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 it's exactly the opposite. I'm the most successful screenwriter you've ever met because I cannot let anyone else determine whether or not I'm going to have a great day, week, or month. I'm going to make that determination on my own. And I know because I've done it 60 months in a row, I know what success looks like. And that's the finished draft better than last month, right? And once you take that power back, no one can ever defeat you because you're setting the standard for what your personal growth is, for what your progress is, for what your achievement is. The money will come and the money will go. The accolation will come. People will line up to tell you how great you are and then, they'll, and then they'll not return your phone call. If that stuff is the stuff that's important to you, then they've already won. It's an excellent point. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Christopher. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. The least successful screenwriter you've ever interviewed. <laughs> Possibly the most insightful. We'll see. <laughs>